Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Heartlanders and welcome to Season 5, Episode 15 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support, and you get a whole lot for it. Just some quick housekeeping. Starting next week and going forward, Fear from the Heartland, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, Drew Blood's Dark Tales, and Horror Hill will air at 8 p.m. Central Time, 9 p.m. Eastern, on their respective nights. Thank you. What do you call a goblin who specializes in blood magic? A hemo-goblin? What do you call a goblin with an injured leg? A hoblin-goblin. An oldie but a goodie. Did you know the Green Goblin decided to turn good and team up with Spider-Man? Yeah, he's now Willem the Friend. <laughs> I'll see myself out. Two Tales Tonight by Xavier Pocaine. Let's get after it. Tonight's tales, dear listeners, can be heard in audiobook form in a collection of short stories on audible.com titled Broken Hearts and Other Horrors by Xavier Pocaine. I'll give you three guesses as to the narrator of said book, and the first two don't count. In tonight's first story, Xavier puts his unique spin on his favorite fairy tale from Korea as he takes us on a goblin's journey from 7th century Korea to 1980s Los Angeles and finally, modern-day rural Missouri. There she'll find love in the arms of a broken human, and he'll remind her how much her kind can trust humans. In tonight's second story, it's the Williams's anniversary, and Robert is out of town, on business. June has a special surprise planned for her husband, which is nothing compared to the shock he unwittingly has for her. In a deleted scene from Xavier's first novel, A Mother's Torment, we're treated to a glimpse of the events that will unlock abilities that June has suppressed since adolescence and set her on a path of conflict and discovery that will change her family far more than infidelity ever could. And now, for your indulgence, Dukaibi and The Anniversary by Xavier Poe Kane. Dukaibi, 646, Kingdom of Scylla. Queen Sando stood at her window and watched the night sky while considering the betrayal of Kim Bidom, chairman of the Council of Nobles. Emperor Taizong is behind this. I know it. Kim Chu Chu, her normally composed diplomatic nephew, yelled while angrily pacing behind her. Women cannot rule Bidom. That fool, he's the mouth of a jackass. You made Scylla a center of art and culture. The people of Pachi and Gugoyo used to laugh at us, but no more. She turned and smiled. Dearest nephew, a tigress does not tell the hare she is a tiger. Fret not, 
I have seen my death, and all will be well. I have decided Jin Dae-o will succeed me as queen. She leaned in and whispered, Then you shall rule well. The color drained from his face in shock. But, your highness, I am true bone rank, not sacred bone. Perhaps it's time for a change, she said as she headed out of her chambers. As you wish, my queen. Where are you going? I think I will go fly a kite. At night? He said, once more confounded by his aunt's actions. The burning kite streaked across the sky, high enough for the revolutionaries to see it. She could not help but smirk. Bidom saw a shooting star and took it as a sign that he should lead Scylla. Superstitious fools were a threat to the temples of learning she had built, but superstitious fools could easily be frightened. If the star returned, Bidom's followers would take it as a sign that their cause was lost. A gust of wind pulled at the kite's taut line, slicing into her hand. As she reached behind her for the ribbon in her hair, her royal blood smeared one of the chopsticks she used to keep her hair in place. One year later, the former queen's personal effects were put into storage, forgotten as her successor ascended to the throne. Among the less formal clothing, jewelry, and books was a humble pair of chopsticks she often wore in her hair. One began to glow as a passing Dokaibi spirit took possession of the discarded artifact. Dark hair formed, winding its way around the wooden sticks and attaching itself to a face eerily reminiscent of the monarch. As the goblin grew, she rolled off the dust-covered table. She stood and pulled the chopsticks from her hair. She tapped the first one on the table. Kuwang kuwang chi da. Kuwang kuwang chi da. Yum sigwe yul me o gu da. Nothing happened. Mustn't have gotten her blood on it. She replaced the inert wood back in her hair before picking up the next one. This time when she tapped it, a plate of bulgogi appeared. 1985, Los Angeles, California Ladies and gentlemen, your new powerful wrestling women tag team champions. The announcer's deep and silky smooth voice blared as the referee raised the hands of the two girls in victory. Holy Fook and Evita Lolita. The audience booed and hissed as their opponents, the brunette Bella Ball, the Southern Belle, and blonde bombshell Heidi Husker rolled on the mat in cheesy agony. The heels had beat the faces and the crowd would have none of it. On cue, Holy Fuke turned her mocking smile into an evil grin. As soon as the ref loosened his grip on her wrist, she spun behind him. Lightning fast, she delivered her signature Anoi Chop Sui strike to Evita Lilita's back. Evita went into spasms and fell to the mat next to the other vanquished women. Oh my goodness, folks! It's a betrayal! There were rumors, Holy Fuke knew Evita Lolita was secretly working for the Contras and not the Commies. The official in charge of the bell rang it furiously. This only stirred up the crowd. Holy Fuke fed off the human energy of the crowd. Her kind loved wrestling with humans. She moved to one corner, the ref waving his arms in a prohibitive, albeit futile gesture as she climbed to the top to give the finishing blow. Once airborne, Bella Ball erupted from the mat catching Ho's lithe frame in midair, forcing her to tumble. They practiced the move countless times in rehearsal. Other than the normal bumps and bruises suffered in practice, no one got hurt. Except tonight. Holy Fuke landed on the side of her foot, twisting her ankle. Her weight not being distributed equally, she fell back as momentum carried her forward, snapping her tibia in a nasty compound fracture. She screamed in inhuman pain. For a second, she shifted back into her natural form. Her skin became red like clay. Her face widened, 
Her canines grew into fangs. Horns sprouted from her head. A momentary loss of control caused the crowd to go silent as they processed what they were witnessing. Then they erupted into cheers, assuming an elaborate stage effect despite the bloody mess of bone that protruded from her skin. The announcer, officials, and director perched high in their booth remained flabbergasted. They knew this was not in the script. Gabriela Pacoyo hurried to Gim Anyanya's side in the dressing room. Their personas as Eva Lolita and Oli Fuk were discarded, leaving Gabriela with nothing but concern for her lover. Yanya, how are you? She brushed the hair from the other woman's face and kissed her on the forehead. I'm good. Did you bring my lucky chopsticks? Of course. Gabriella handed her the wooden utensils. Don't know why you're insisting on bringing these to the hospital. They're lucky. Can you find some water? None of that tap stuff. Maybe some of the new bottled water from the producer's lounge? Sure. She stole a kiss. Kahyanya waved as her girlfriend left, and she tried to hide the tears sliding down her cheek. She contemplated her next move. She had revealed her true self. While the audience thought it was an elaborate trick, some humans knew they had just seen something supernatural. Once more, she had to find somewhere new. She tapped one of her chopsticks on the bloody bandage covering her wound. She said quietly, her voice lyrical as she spoke Hangul. She gritted her teeth as her bone and skin mended themselves. Through the years, and when she knew it safe to do so, she would reveal herself to a favored human. But this time things were different. The revelation was not under controlled circumstances. She could not afford to get caught, not in the United States where the people did not even pass down stories of her kind. Able to put weight on her broken leg, she rose from the cot, retrieved her clothes, and slipped unnoticed out the door, leaving yet another life behind. 2019 Crocker, Missouri Gravel crunched beneath Ayanya's feet as she explored the back roads of the small town in the Ozark Mountains, located just north of Fort Leonard Wood and the Korean community the base attracted. No one there batted an eye at her Korean guys. She looked up and marveled at the stars. They were the same ones she lived under in Korea more than 1,400 years. Out here, away from the light pollution, she thought of the sky over Scylla during her youth. To the east, the sky lacked stars. The rumble of faraway thunder let her know she needed to seek shelter. She began looking for an abandoned house to make her new home. This part of the country housed a bonanza of hidden, uninhabited structures. In Arkansas, she spent an entire year in a two-story mansion in the middle of the woods, until the property was sold and the owner flew a drone over that portion of his new land, of course. When the scent of oncoming rain reached her, she found a cozy-looking red structure tucked away behind a small copse. The door creaked on rusted hinges as she entered. The first bolt of lightning illuminated the single room, revealing an ancient chalkboard, desks, loose sheets of paper, and random books on the floor. Not much to look at, but you'll do. She took a chopstick from her hair and tapped it against her open palm, thinking about how she'd decorate the small place. She flicked her chopstick and a couch appeared, still wrapped in warehouse plastic. Another flick and a gas lantern appeared. More flicks and chanting caused more items to disappear from store shelves and warehouses and reappear in her new home. The final item she summoned was red hair dye. Ayana sunned herself in a hammock as she read the latest novel by Stephen King. She was a little irked at her chopstick for summoning this partially signed tome. 
1,500 miles away, the horror grandmaster had just finished signing his first name and begun on the K when it disappeared from his hands, an event that left the author astounded and wondering if he had just experienced some sort of flashback. The heavily scent of pork barbecue drew a young Ah out of her book. She swung her legs down and took a moment to enjoy the sensation of her bare feet on the grass before trudging inside her one-room schoolhouse to retrieve a pair of shoes. Her stomach rumbled. If she found human company, so much the better. She followed her nose about a quarter mile down the dirt road. There she spied a gravel driveway meandering into a grove of evergreens that obscured whatever dwelling stood behind the trees. Her light steps barely made a noise. It was easier for her to appraise her new neighbor before making contact. Her spying was made easier by the sound of a zoon playing an Alabama song the music struggling to be heard through cheap dollar store speakers. A man in a robe and red hat stood with his back to her, tending to the grill on a dilapidated porch in front of a rundown trailer. An opened Meister brow sat next to an ashtray. When new, the structure must have gleamed white, but now it was dull and pockmarked with mildew and various shades of black and green. The trailer's partially missing skirt likely made it harder to keep warm in the winter. A clearly hand-me-down shotgun leaned against the front door. Smoke rose from the pit, and a smaller plume joined it whenever the man took a puff from the freshly rolled cigarette in his right hand. The breeze shifted, carrying with it a piney, skunky scent. Hello, she said, stopping far enough away that he would hopefully not perceive her as a threat. Startled, he spun around while at the same time backing toward the door. Ow! Ah, fuck! She saw him reach for an old shotgun before cursing and grabbing his back. When their eyes met, he dropped his hand to his side. Can I help you? I'm sorry to bother you. I'm your new neighbor and wanted to introduce myself. I'm... She hesitated as a result of the 1,400-year-old habit of introducing herself the Korean way before pressing on. ha yan gim She stepped forward and offered her hand. Wincing, he reached down to shake it. Emerson? Emerson Dixon. You can call me Emerson or Dixon, but don't call me Dix. Only my ex-wife calls me that. Emerson smiled at the last bit, using humor to blunt the near-crippling arthritic pain in his back, an effort lost when he straightened to examine the gray meat sizzling and popping on the grill. The aroma of pork seasoned with garlic and various herbs melted with the charcoal smoke. Would you like to join me? He asked. I don't want to be an imposition. Once more he eyed the stakes, his mind calculating the cost of her company in terms of reduced leftovers. Was company worth potentially sacrificing a meal in the upcoming days? Nah, not at all. It would be my pleasure. She smiled as she mounted the stairs to the deck. What is that? Smells delicious. Fork steaks, he returned to whisking the contents of a Tupperware bowl. You're in for a treat. I'm making my family's secret barbecue sauce. Mind grabbing some plate silverware and a couple beers from the fridge, huh, Emerson asked as he checked the meat for the last time. I don't mind, she rose from her seat. Her host had been nothing but welcoming, quick with a joke and charming in his own backwoods way. She felt sorry for him and the way he walked with a limp. Each step caused him obvious pain. She caught herself reaching for the chopstick from her hair. She could fix him, but it was too soon for her to know if it was safe to reveal herself. She took in his modest abode, cluttered without being filthy. The yellow appliances had likely been out of date even when new. A painting of a volcano on velvet, likely from the 70s, hung on a wood-paneled wall clearly from the 80s. Ayan Ah returned with the plates, utensils, and two Meister brows. She set two places on the old and rickety plastic patio table before sliding into the matching green chair. He cut one of the large pork steaks, now dripping with sauce, in half, served her one, and took the other. The other two steaks he took inside to cut up and put in the fridge for the next couple of days. He took a seat as she popped the top of a beer before he could ask for one. 
The tips of her fingers on her left hand touched her right wrist as she handed the can to him. Is the woman serving the man a Korean thing? He said with a slightly mischievous grin. If so, you might be welcome any time. He took the drink and gave her a flirtatious wink. No, she couldn't help but giggle at the farce. Maybe one time, but now it's customary for the youngest to serve the eldest, regardless of gender. It was good that he thought she was in her 20s rather than about 1,350 years older than him. I like you. I can tell you don't take no shit, but you ain't uptight about it. You're welcome anytime. A Yun Ah hummed to herself as she made her way through the small Korean market outside Fort Leonard Wood. The humble store reminded her of the ones she shopped in around Gunsan before she left on a GI's arm in 1977 to come to America. The scents and claustrophobic aisles made her homesick. She wanted to linger, but Emerson waited for her in the truck. It was her turn to cook dinner. Knowing that her magical chopstick would summon the bulgogi marinade from a shop like this and not some corporate warehouse or box store, she asked him to drive her to this market. She paid the shop owner and chatted briefly in Korean. The ajama smiled and gave her two cans of coffee from a wine cooler next to the cash register. A young ah waved, promising to be back soon, and left. She handed one of the coffees to Emerson as she climbed into the 07 Ford. Cold coffee? He asked, his hand wrapping around the frigid can. You can drink it like that or I can warm it up in a pot of water when we get home. Seems like a lot of work for something that should be convenient. He raised an eyebrow at her as he backed out of his spot. Meh, up to you. Some drink it cold, some drink it hot. Others room temp. Live and let live. Well, it's too late for coffee. Even if I drank that now, I couldn't sleep tonight. Much less if I waited the hour it'll take us to get back to my trailer and get it warmed up. She smiled an impish grin. Well, who said anything about sleeping tonight? Emerson almost swerved into the car next to him. E excuse me? I thought maybe we could have sex. Her tone was matter of fact. No playful, innocent lilt, no seductive, breathless bedroom voice, just a comment as if discussing the weather. Listen, Hyuna, I don't think that'll happen. He squirmed in his seat and rubbed his face anxiously, pushing his red hat up high on his forehead. Why not? He took a deep breath and gathered his thoughts. She gave him the space to do so. She could sense his frustration and had learned to give him time to come to terms with what he needed to say. My dick don't work, okay? He spoke loudly to mask shame with belligerence. Besides, what's a beautiful young lady like you want with a broken old man like me? He muttered. What if I could make it work? She placed a hand on his knee. He did not move away. Well, looks like you got money. But unless you got and are willing to fork over about $400 for a doctor's visit, and hell, even the cheap blue pills, 30 bucks a pop, the meds, nah, I don't see how you make it work. Trust me, we don't need a doctor. Assuming he would not know how to use chopsticks, she set his place with a fork. Taking a seat, she waited for him to take the first bite. When he did, a smile slowly spread across his face. This is pretty good. Thank you. After several minutes of not talking, Emerson's inhalation of the Korean beef dish slowed enough for him to attempt conversation. So, what do you want to talk about? Took a sip of the warmed up coffee. What's your story? Why does your back bother you? She felt bad when he put his fork down and sighed. A deep sigh that caused his broad shoulders to rise and then droop. I was married once, a real productive member of society. Drove a truck for the world's largest cap maker. The company operated plants across Missouri and down into Arkansas. That was until an accident took me off the road permanently. Semi ran a stop sign. He was trying to avoid a way station by taking the back roads. Another sigh. I was lucky. The bastard clipped the front of my smaller truck, which just threw me around a bit. 
Enough to break my back, but not enough to kill me. Had I been going just a bit faster, I'd be dead. But here I am. That's horrible. What happened with your wife? She rose and started clearing the table. The ride into town had done a number on his back, and it was painful for her to watch him try to move around. Well, she did her best, she and my son, to be supportive. Eventually, the company hired me back, but not as a driver since I was then disabled. I did random jobs around the factory for less pay. A few years go by, and they're getting killed by competitors who move south of the border because of NAFTA. So they announced they're laying off a bunch of people and opening a new factory somewhere in Mexico. And not Mexico, Missouri. They shuttered that plant. He laughed at the dark irony. We thought we'd be fine. We sued the pants off the company the other trucker drove for. When the blood-sucking lawyers were paid, we had a cool million in the bank. We thought it was enough to take us through retirement and to the grave. After all, we were millionaires. But we paid cash for a new house. And not some modest ranch, but damn near a mansion. A King Ranch F-250 pickup for me. A Taurus for the wife. A Mustang for the kid, which he totaled and somehow walked away without a scratch. The little bastard. All paid for with cash. After another sip of coffee, she detected a slight smile on his face. The money goes fast. Then you got property taxes. A little shithook who's suddenly entitled wanting a limo for prom. A wife who no longer wants to get costume jewelry at Walmart. Then the money runs out. When the money ran out, it wasn't too much longer before she ran out. She sounds like such a witch. Eh, it's okay. I've come to terms with it. Last time I talked to her or my son was 2009. She wiped a tear from her eye. You know, you've been so kind and wonderful to me. She took his hand and led him to his couch. Let me try and make it better. She gently pushed him to the couch and sat close to him, sliding her legs over his lap and letting her dress slide up, enticing him to touch and explore. She noticed his hand shaking nervously and thought it cute as she wrapped her arms around his neck and leaned in to kiss him. She closed her eyes as her lips pressed against his stunned mouth. She could not see his wide-eyed expression of surprise at her forwardness. After a few moments of stillness, she felt him kiss her back. Then his hands began to move, one wrapping around her waist and pulling her closer to him, the other sliding up the bare skin of her offered leg. She did not feel the expected hardness pressing against his pants. She broke the kiss and looked him straight in the eyes. I can fix you. I don't believe anyone can, but well, you're free to try, because if you're offering what I think you're offering, I haven't had it in almost a decade. She reached behind her and pulled the chopsticks from her hair, placing the regular one on the end table. Now, this may hurt, but only for a moment. He laughed. I'm sure it will, baby. She moved her leg just enough to tap his crotch. Kuwang kuwang chida. Kuwang kuwang chida. Maosin uai. Sum kinyul. Chiyo a chibshio. She then tapped his back. Kuwang kuwang chida. Kuwang kuwang chida. Emeosin uai. Dongyul chil o yada. He could not help but laugh out loud. Gonna take more than a chopstick in your Korean ta- He couldn't finish the sentence before he shrieked as the pain hit him. His back seized and it felt like the time he did not wear his cup during softball. He felt his heart pounding as his blood and arteries were stripped of blockage. When he could, he shot up from the couch, nearly knocking her to the floor. What the fuck did you do to me? He screamed at her. Do you still hurt? She queried. This was not the first time she healed a lover's grievous wounds. She would be concerned if he were not pissed. Yes, my fucking back. It, it doesn't hurt. I fixed the other problem too. She giggled as she motioned to the bulge in his pants. He did not say a word, his lips spreading into a wolfish grin as he scooped her up and carried her off to bed. The couple lay in bed, the sheets thrown off so their bodies could cool down. What are you? He asked, 
brushing a strand of hair from her face and looking her in the eye. A witch? Something else? She smiled. I am a Dukaibi, or in English, a goblin. Wait, you ain't human? He studied her. You're too pretty to be a goblin. We can shapeshift to blend into society. We didn't do it back in the old days, but today with your cameras and technology, we don't have a choice. His face took on an expression of fear betraying his inner thoughts. You're not going to eat me, are you? This caused her to laugh. No, oh no, we don't prey on humans. You're a source of amusement for us. We love to wrestle. Carry on, make love. She playfully rubbed his chest. Now we will play tricks on the jerks. But if a human shows us kindness, they get our favors. So when I offered you a meal, I knew you were one of the good ones. He shifted nervously. Are you immortal? Were you here when God created the earth? She giggled. Oh no, I'm not that old. I was born about 647 in your calendar. He let out a whistle. You look great for 1400 years old. He looked at the incredible woman lying naked next to him. Had it not been for his healed back and manhood, he would think her crazy. So how did you get here? He asked as his mind worked on the puzzle of his new lover. I came here on a marriage visa with a GI. Once here, he turned into a jerk and we divorced. I bounced around, even held a job once, professional wrestling. I played a character named Holy Fook. Emerson could not help but laugh at the pun. I'm sorry, that's funny in a screwed up kind of way. It's all right, but during a match... My partner got her move wrong and ended up breaking my leg. I shifted into my goblin form for a moment, so I left L.A. I disappeared, thought of exploring the West Coast, and returning once people forgot. Fast forward to six months ago, someone uploaded an old VHS tape of the broadcast to YouTube. Then it went viral, and some cryptid hunters started tracking me down. So I hopped on a train to come to the Midwest and see if I could disappear out here. And... That led me to you. I'm glad it did. He felt himself starting to get aroused again and rolled over on top of her. Emerson felt deeply conflicted as he brushed his teeth. He found himself falling in love with the woman who healed him two months ago. Not a human woman, a Dokaibi woman. He questioned the morality of the relationship if it were a sin and a crime against nature. He thought about asking his preacher but then he realized how crazy his story sounded. As wrong as the relationship felt, it also felt right. Finished brushing, he returned the toothbrush to its place in the medicine cabinet and closed it. He caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror. His hair had come in thicker and was turning to black from gray. His face looked different. His features were more rounded. His nose was receding into his face and growing wider. It reminded him of a Korean lion sculpture Ayana had showed him on her phone. It seemed like he was becoming someone else. He worried that he was becoming something else. Not like either of you is looking for a soulmate, he told the man in the mirror. He watched his reflected mouth move as if it were someone else's. What's an old man to a woman who could live forever? She healed you. Perhaps now's the time to break it off. Hell, you're going to go deer hunting for the first time this weekend. He began a two-way conversation with himself. She's done nothing wrong, and I like the company. But I'm changing. Well, what's the best way to break it off with her? What if she doesn't want to let me go? I'll just have to find out what'll make her run away. She looked at Emerson in confusion. What an odd question. What is the Dokaibi's kryptonite? We're not General Zod from Superman, she let out a giggle. In 1400 years, something must have made you run for your life at least once, if not a couple of times. She paused, dirty dinner plates in hand. Well, I hate blood. I think because our physical forms come into being when humans get their blood on something personal to them. Emerson nodded. So I think that's why we tend to not like blood. What are you afraid of? A shitty grin spread across his face. 
Gold? Seriously? He let out a chuckle. Why do you think my family is poor? We're all terrified of the shiny yellow metal. I can handle brass as long as it's not polished. She quipped, her head to the left. I think you're making fun of me. Not at all. The way he held up his hand in submission let her believe him. Okay, she said with a smile she took the dishes to the sink. Ayana smiled as she approached the trailer. She thought about seeing if he wanted to move in with her. She had scouted a rundown two-story house, and between her magic chopstick and Emerson's renewed body, they could make a home together. If he wanted to take that step. If not, she thought about moving on. She had heard some great things about St. James, the heart of Missouri wine country along the Merrimack River. Suddenly, a sickly sweet metallic scent reached her nostrils, stopping her just before she stepped in the blood smeared on the steps leading to the porch. Emerson! She cried out, fearful something bad had happened to him. He stepped out dressed in bloody jeans. Ah, there. He calmly took a sip from a bottle of Budweiser. Why? A tear slid down her cheek. I healed you. I thought we enjoyed each other's company. Well, it's complicated. I'm no good at breakups, and yes, you healed me. But look at me. I'm different. I feel like me, but I don't look like me. Thank you for all you've done, but I can't pretend anymore. But you could have just told me to leave. His shoulders rose and fell in a sigh. Look, I have no idea how to break up with a goblin. I didn't know if you would eat me. She turned, not wanting him to see her cry. She pulled the chopstick from her hair. Kuwang kuwang chida. Kuwang kuwang chida. Jiyong... A bar of gold appeared, pulled from a warehouse somewhere in Kentucky. She tossed it over her shoulder, ignoring the sickening dull thwack followed by a thump as she ran away grumbling to herself. You can't trust a man. The Anniversary June smiled at her reflection in the hotel mirror, her skin glistening from the shower. It was their second anniversary, and she was in a good mood as she prepared to surprise her husband. She had been planning this since he had told her that work would be taking him to Fort Lauderdale. They had met during their freshman year of college when she posted a profile on a matchmaking website for those seeking arrangements, meaning it matched attractive young women with older men, who were capable of providing a certain lifestyle. Robert was a 28-year-old accountant and trust fund baby who was drawn to her because he was, in his words, going through an Asian phase. Fairly handsome and gregarious, he swept her off her feet. Her mother did not approve of him. She said she got a bad vibe from the man, that he was not good enough for her daughter, that he would only break her heart. Typical mom overprotectiveness. June seriously doubted her mother would ever consider any man worthy of her daughter. The worst was when Lillian found out the nature of the website on which the couple met. While she did not say it, June could see the word or in her mother's eyes. Becoming pregnant at 20 did not help. Lillian made her worry that her daughter, the daughter of a physician and the stepdaughter of a man who recently completed his doctorate of divinity, would not finish college known. Robert did everything possible to dote on her and make sure she only took a semester off. This made it easier for June, as her mother then started to like Robert. Just a little. However, it left her asking if she was living for herself or for others. June applied a bright cherry red lipstick. The glossy wet look was the final touch to her makeup. She tweaked her black hair, now slightly curled rather than straight. She slipped out of the Ritz-Carlton's comfy cotton robe. She was here to seduce, so she slipped into her weapons. A black corset, black thigh highs with a back seam, stripper heels, matching opera gloves, and a sheer robe to finish the look. She lay on the bed, trying her best to strike a sexy pose. She did not have to wait long. The doorknob whirled when her husband tapped his key card against the lock. She heard the door open and her husband fumble as he entered the room. She smiled 
wishing she could see his face as he entered the small foyer before the bedroom proper. She had an essential oils diffuser making the room smell of lavender. LED lights alternated between various hues of red and pink to cast a romantic glow. Ravel's bolero played softly from Bluetooth speakers. The jasmine and ambergris scent of an unfamiliar perfume hit her before the sound of another woman's voice. I'm going to make your volcano erupt. Robert moaned. Oh, I can hardly wait. You did all this for me? The other woman asked. Did all what, Elaine? Oh, shit. June's mind was spinning, a shocked expression on her face as her husband rushed into the room. A bespectacled brunette, her blouse open and bra unclasped, appeared behind him with her hand, sporting an obnoxiously large ruby ring entangled in his. June, what the fuck are you doing here? Her shock turned to humiliated anger and rage. She tried to say something that would sting, but too much came to her mind, overloading her thoughts until she shut down. She grabbed her phone and pushed her way through Robert and the woman, stopping only to cover herself with the hotel robe and grab her bag. June had changed in the hotel's public bathroom. She replaced the lingerie with jeans and a t-shirt. Holding on to the last scraps of her dignity, she stared straight ahead and ignored the stares of the desk clerk and the few guests milling about the lobby, all of whom were doing their best to ignore the woman with puffy red eyes holding back tears. She moved on autopilot, her mind scrambling to decide what to do next, but it latched onto the image of Robert in someone else's arms. She needed somewhere to stay, but couldn't remain in the same hotel where her husband was fucking someone else instead of chasing after her. June looked at the Marriott sign a few blocks away and began walking. It started to drizzle. The sky had opened by the time she made it to the Marriott. June stopped under a street lamp. Really? She asked, looking up. You want to piss on me too? She plopped to the ground, the light surrounding her as the rain fell. She thought about her mother who was going to be pissed. Part of her feared for Robert's safety, but the rest of her did not care. She wrapped her arms around her legs, her knees drawn to her chin, and lowered her head as she thought about how to tell her mother. A loud explosion above her brought her back to the moment and she was suddenly bathed in darkness. Shards of glass were raining down on her, some cutting her skin. The pain felt good. Too good. She picked up a larger, jagged piece of glass and contemplated cutting herself, but she could hear her mother's condescending tone when she saw it. Oh, June showing her feelings again. And she just wasn't up for that. So not a suicidal cut. Just somewhere private, like she used to do with cigarettes. Honey, are you okay? A soft voice asked behind her. June turned and saw an old woman wearing a Marriott pin and a friendly smile, standing under an umbrella. Yes, June stuttered. I was hoping for her room. I just wanted to think for a moment. I saw you on the camera and then the light exploded. You look like you're in trouble. June sniffled and nodded her head. It's okay, honey. You're safe. Your pimp can't hurt you anymore. Let's get you a room. I can call the cops if you want, the woman said. June couldn't help but laugh. It's not that kind of trouble. I flew down here to surprise my husband since work took him away on our anniversary. She felt a kind hand on her shoulder. It's okay, honey. Say no more. Let me comp you a room. The woman, who was the hotel's manager on duty, helped her to her feet and carried her bag as they walked to the warmth of the lobby. Lillian sat on June's couch, feeling herself calming down from a sudden rage that filled her shortly after putting her grandson to bed. She had suddenly thought about Robert and that was the start of her rage. It would not go away, no matter how many different YouTube meditation videos she tried. Eventually, she buried her face in a pillow and screamed. This seemed to break the irrational anger. Lillian checked the time and did the math. That had been about 30 minutes ago. Her phone rang with June's picture and ringtone. June, I didn't expect to hear from you until later. Mikey is fine, you don't have to... She could only hear the soft sobbing of her daughter on the other end. June, 
What's wrong? Where are you? June's voice made a croaking noise. June, speak to me. Tell me what happened and where you are. I'll send Michael. Robert's cheating on me. I'm taking the next flight home. The line went silent. Robert paced the floor of the bedroom as Elaine sat on the edge of the bed, rehooking her bra. I guess we're caught, huh? She asked. Yeah, fuck, he said, taking a sip of wine as he looked over at Elaine, who began buttoning her blouse. So, is the mood killed? Robert could see a flicker of lust in the woman's eyes as her fingers hesitated to fasten the next button. If it was anyone else, maybe, but you're my heartbreaker. She chuckled wickedly as Robert sat his wine down and moved toward the bed, pushing her onto her back. June lifted her head from the Uber driver's lap after he finished. He was mildly handsome with an unremarkable name. Not that she cared. She now knew no one could truly love someone as defective as her. So what was one petty and vindictive blowjob to get back at her cheating son-of-a-bitch-soon-to-be ex-husband? She fixed his pants as he drove. Want me to pull over and get you something to drink? He asked, stroking her hair. That would be lovely. Will that be all? The 7-Eleven clerk asked as June set her big gulp down on the counter. She eyed the cigarettes behind the counter. I'll take a pack of the Marlboros. Which one? She took a moment to study the cancer sticks. She shrugged. The blue ones and a lighter. The Uber driver lifted her bag from his trunk and offered to take it inside for her. She declined. He awkwardly shifted his weight from one foot to another, gathering his courage before going in for a kiss. She turned, his lips landing on her cheek. He pulled away, his face a deep red. I'm sorry, he said meekly. Look, it's not you. I just... He held up his hands in defeat and backed away just a little. No, I get it. I think I know what's going on. Cheating husband? She looked to the ground. He put a hand on her arm. I just get feelings about people, and you're a catch, so the guy who throws you away is a dumbass. He offered her a slip of yellow paper. I know I'm not much, you see an Uber driver, but I'm doing it to get through grad school. She took the post-it note with his number on it. If you ever want to get some coffee and... and a blowjob? He grew several shades redder. That would be nice, but... No, not what I mean. His shoulders slumped in defeat and he held up his hand and pointed to a pale band of skin around his finger. I know what it's like to be tossed like a piece of garbage. I was just going to say if you'd like to talk. I'm sorry, June hesitated. But that's not a guarantee I'll call. He smiled a hopeful grin. Just consider calling. That's all I ask. She nodded, turned, and began walking up to her front door. About three feet from the door, she stopped. She closed her eyes. Deep inhale, exhale. Deep inhale, exhale. Her eyes opened. She slid the key into the lock and turned it. Lillian was waiting by the door. She had watched the awkward exchange between June and the driver as he took her luggage from the trunk. The guy went for a kiss, but June turned her cheek. Lillian moved away from her perch by the window to give her daughter some privacy to make the same mistakes Lillian made after the sperm donor left them. Oh, sweet pea. Lillian hugged her daughter as she came through the door. Thanks, Mom. If you don't mind, I think I'll just go to bed. I made us some tea. June cracked a hint of a smile. I think I could use some. Leaving her bag in the foyer, she moved to the kitchen and slipped the post-it note into the trash can. What was that, dear? Some litter you picked up off the street? June looked to the floor. Yeah, Mom, it's not important. Lillian took the kettle and poured her daughter a cup of tea. June was alone in the master bathroom. She stripped to her panties and t-shirt and slid into the empty two-person jacuzzi. She opened the pack of cigarettes, letting the cellophane wrapper flutter to the white fiberglass of the tub. She pulled one from the pack and brought it to her lips and flicked the cheap bick. She took a drag and held it in her mouth for just a moment before blowing it out. As June took in another shallow puff, 
she brought up YouTube on her phone and searched for the song she needed to hear, the song that was already playing in her mind. Soon, Johnny Cash's earthy bass baritone voice drifted from the phone's tiny speakers, covering Hurt by Nine Inch Nails with intense melancholy. She had been waiting for this moment since before she bought the Marlboros. No Uber driver she blew because he was cloyingly nice to her. No mother reliving her own past indiscretions. No one to see how she dealt with her pain. She was alone, just her and her voices. She shifted her legs. There was a spot on her inner thigh she had not marked yet. She took the cigarette from her lips and leaned back in the tub. She smiled as the pain made her leg twitch, but she held the cigarette in place with a practiced hand. After the pain subsided, she flicked the extinguished cancer stick into the toilet before fishing another from the pack. I hope you enjoyed tonight's tales, Dukaibi, and The Anniversary by Xavier Poe Kane. Still not a best-selling author, Xavier Poe Kane is a former door gunner on the International Space Station. When not making the galaxy safe for democracy, he writes whatever weirdness comes to mind. He currently lives in the woods with his wife, Morticia, in a state of mutual weirdness with their dogs, Chuck Norris and the three-legged Jabba the Hutt. Thanks to the GI Bill, he has an MFA in popular fiction writing and publishing from Emerson College. His latest book, Broken Hearts and Other Horrors, is available now. His next book and first novel, A Mother's Torment, will be released September 1st. Both of these works will be narrated by yours truly. You can hook up with Xavier and check out what consumes him at his website, www. XavierKane.com. That's X-A-V-I-E-R-K-A-N-E.com. Or Twitter at XavierKane9 and on Facebook, XavierKane. If you enjoyed tonight's story, hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.